We've been looking at Jesus, shattering some of the stereotypes that Jesus unfortunately carries with him in the church that wears his name throughout the land and even throughout the ages. And after all the questions, and after all of the quagmires that the educated leaders of the day were certain that they were putting to Jesus, Jesus is now in the temple and in the mind, in my mind at any rate, this change of venue serves to accentuate a new level of intensity. It serves to accentuate the gravity of the newest inquiry by Jesus to the religious experts of the day. It serves to show both them and the others listening that they are not the all-knowing theological experts that they think they are. And Jesus' efforts in staring them down are for two purposes, two purposes at least. First, it is to show the masses that the experts are not reliable teachers of the most pressing questions of life. And yet that is who they were looking for, for the most significant issues in their lives and theological answers and questions that pertain to them and all things pertaining to life and godliness. And second, Jesus hopes to grab the hearts and the minds of those Nicodemuses that are out there amongst the crowd, the Gamaliels and the unique scribe that we talked about last week. He's hoping to reach those who, as we've said so often, the honest doubters, who are looking for answers not to avoid the truth like dishonest doubters, but in search of the truth. Again, the movement to the temple instead of the town square where things had been going on between the masses and the experts and Jesus and all that now heightens the intensity of what Jesus is going to lay on the critics now. And again, despite what they think their questions and traps have have kind of put Jesus in a corner only to find out that they were wrong every time, their questions and their traps were downright infantile. On the other hand, we have Jesus and his inquiries, and his inquiries, and this one in particular, as you'll see, is worthy of a doctoral dissertation. Man. And you know what? If you can't even say it, don't even attempt it. So, anyway, I want to just, I don't know why my, my head went here, but, but there was something about just comparing Jesus' inquiry that's coming right now and what the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders and the high priests have been putting to him, thinking they were so clever. And I would put their question on par with something like this. Hey, Jesus, watch this, guys, we've got him on this one. If a, if a passenger train passes Pittsburgh at 35 miles an hour, how long will it take to get to Chicago? Aww. Really? Whereas Jesus asks them, Hey, academic wizards, if the train loses its brakes 1.3 miles outside of Chicago, Will there be enough track for that train to coast to a stop? You see, that question now requires knowledge of Newton's first law of motion and inertia and weight and mass. It has to take into consideration the coefficient of friction, which is that friction developed between the wheels of the train and the steel rails. And you also need to know if the tracks are straight or if they're curved on that 1.3 mile where the train starts decelerating because that will change the coefficient of friction. All of that, that's what Jesus is putting to them. And they're saying, hey, do you got the answer, Jesus? 
He's making them look like buffoons that we have seen week after week. The scribe's question is elementary. All you need to know is the distance from Pittsburgh to Chicago. Jesus' question, on the other hand, is at an entirely different level. It is exponentially more complicated. Jesus' question that's going to come now in the temple sets the religious smarty pants on their heels. Yes, that's a Greek term. (laughs) Beginning in verse 35 of Mark 12, Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, so, 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 religious experts that you are, masters of the Old Testament as you are, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? This is an ontological nightmare. And onto what? Ontology is the study or the nature of being. So what is Jesus asking? Well, let's go to the source for Jesus' question. Because Jesus is quoting from Psalm 110, a psalm of David that was written many hundreds of years before the birth of the one who's standing before them doing the questioning. This is what Psalm 110, 1-7, it's a very short psalm, says, although I have excerpted it just for the sake of time. The Lord, which by the way in your text is probably in all caps, that's to distinguish it in the original from the word Jehovah versus Adonai. So the Lord, which is Jehovah, says to my Lord, Adonai, not in all caps, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord, Jehovah, all caps, will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. The psalm, Psalm 110, written by David, is clearly messianic, meaning that it is referring to the coming Messiah, the coming Savior, the Redeemer of mankind. And he's asking the experts of the Old Testament to explain what seems to be an ontological, if not contradiction, at least inconsistency. And by, if, by the way, if you have seen the shack or plan to see the shack, you will see ontological confusion demonstrated very early in the movie, just for what it's worth. So how can the Messiah be? This is the question. Jesus is asking them, the experts, how can the Messiah be the son of David? And yet David calls the Messiah, my Lord. How can he be both David's son and David's Lord as the son of God? This is not a simple question. This is weighty theology touching on incarnation. This is weighty theology touching on human lineage and yet divine origins of the Savior. And although Jesus is junior in age to David by many centuries, Jesus has far more of an exalted role than David and any and all of the patriarchs. 
What Jesus is doing here is he's really pushing the finer points of messianic origins with those, again, who are supposed to know. And his purpose is to reduce, if not remove, their influence over the too trusting and the unsuspecting masses. Was Jesus successful? That depends on how you define success in such an occasion. But there's a hint in the last phrase of Mark 12:37, as he adds, And the great crowd enjoyed listening to him. The crowds remember, this goes back for several weeks, the crowds always consist of honest doubters and dishonest doubters. We begin to see now, after Jesus' numerous confrontations with the religious know-it-alls, that the looking, listening public was benefiting from what today's liberal theologians, if they didn't know that it was Jesus, would brand, I am sure, as heartless, hateful, mean-spirited confrontations of very spiritual people. And yet Jesus never hesitates. So the question is out there still concerning Jesus as David's Lord and Son. Now, I mentioned last week the New Testament book of Hebrews and how it was written to clarify just what we saw, to clarify the continuum from Genesis right on through the entire Bible of the unified unfolding plan of God for mankind. And the book of Hebrews explains that Jesus was not a New Testament creation. Jesus does not represent any kind of a change or correction in either the mind of God or the purposes that God has for the world. And that this has been a gradual unfolding from Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, onward. It wasn't a new teaching. And when Paul is preaching Jesus now, in a few years from now, in, in, in the, the chronology of what we're talking about in Mark, Jesus is at a place in Athens called Mars Hill. And he is standing before a group of men called the Areopagus. The Areopagus was a council that was comprised of, of wise individuals, so-called, and scholars dealing with religious and educational matters. The council now that Paul is before demands that he explain this strange and new teaching. We go to Acts chapter 17 to get some detail on this. According to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them, some of them were persuaded. And they joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Who were those? The honest doubters. Those who were looking for answers, not to avoid the truth, but in search of the truth. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. They are the dishonest doubters. These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another King Jesus. And so they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. 
And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these, referring to the Bereans, were more noble-minded than those in Thessaloniki, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily, people after my own heart, to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men, more honest doubters. But when the Jews of Thessaloniki found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they, the dishonest doubters, came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Now, while Paul was waiting at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Now he's with a crowd of honest and dishonest doubters alike. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, (laughs) these are the open-minded, dishonest doubters, what would this idle babbler wish to say? But others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took Paul and they brought him to the Areopagus. This was all the lead up to him standing before the council. May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are a very religious, put it in our day, a very spiritual people in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you are worshiping in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked such times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, the dishonest doubters. But others said, We shall hear you again concerning this, the honest doubters. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So one man from the council actually came over to the side of the light. Paul, through Scripture and right reason, as Martin Luther kind of coined that phrase, I believe, explains that Jesus was neither a strange deity nor a new teaching. But rather, Jesus has always been 
the be-all and the end-all of everything, as Paul reminds them that even their own secular philosophers and poets understood. The writer of Hebrews, then, that new that book in the New Testament, also quotes portions of Psalm 110 from David in Hebrews chapter 1 and in chapter 7 and in chapter 10, categorically identifying Jesus as the one that the psalm is explaining. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Chapter 7, verse 17, For it is attested of him, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. In chapter 10, verse 11, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Back to Mark. Jesus dismantles the dishonest doubter's lack of belief. But the Holy Spirit lets us know through Mark's pen that the honest doubters in the crowd were enthralled with him. When we think back to Jesus' previous questions to the Pharisees and the scribes and the high priests and the elders, those questions that Jesus initially put out there were shots across the bow of their theological hypocrisy and ignorance. The allusion comes from naval terminology that is still in effect today. And when you are warning a ship that you are approaching and you will destroy them if they do not stop, you fire a missile or, you know, whatever, 50 cal or whatever across the bow of the ship. And everyone knows in nautical terms globally that that means we better stop or face the consequences. That's what Jesus was doing. But now here in the temple, Jesus just took out their rudder, which in the strategy again of naval warfare is the end of that ship. So Jesus now shifts gears in his teaching, at least in his focus in the temple, addressing now the non-experts and the honest doubters. I want you to picture the scene first of all. So again, Jesus is in the temple, but remember who Jesus is, okay? He doesn't have the notoriety and the fame and everything that, that we know of him because of time and of further revelation, etc. But Jesus is a Nazarene. He had no street cred, if you will. He had no street cred with, with the highfalutin, arrogant, educated, you know, uh, uh, wealthy class and powerful class of the religious leadership. And he was from the wrong side of the tracks. You might remember Philip's little interaction with Nathaniel. And Philip comes to Nathaniel and he's all excited for him to meet Jesus of Nazareth. And what does Nathaniel say? Nazareth? Seriously? Might as well be Lewis than Auburn. Can uh, I, I, 
He says, he says, Nazareth, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You see? Those biases were well and alive way back then. Jesus is not formally educated, although he ended up in AP theology. Gifted and talented, I would say. The respected, educated, powerful class despised him. And Jesus never strove to gain favor with them. In fact, quite the opposite. He jabbed his finger in their eyes every opportunity that he had and embarrassed them with regularity and intent. And now with them looking on, he's going to make matters even worse still. He says to the mass of the bystanders, meaning the not-so-pretty people, saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour, listen carefully now, you'll see why, who devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer Long prayers. Oh, God of our fathers. And I'm sure they all had really bushy eyebrows. And they made sure, you know, it's kind of, I picture them praying, right? Like going, oh, God, holy Jehovah. Make sure people are watching and everything else. And the number of people, you know, they go on and on. Oh, they love that. It was all a show. It was all a scam. And what Jesus just did and said is with a sweep, he categorized an entire group, the scribes, the Pharisees, the high priests, the elders, putting them on his registry of religious offenders. You have to kind of hope that Jesus has security around him as he puts the bitter icing on the cake, saying about them, Mark 12, 38 through 40, this is the end of it. These will receive, oh, not just a condemnation. These will receive greater condemnation. Verse 41. So now Jesus sits down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small, two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Now, make sure we understand again here the whole context. They are still in the temple. But Jesus has left where he was, where the women weren't allowed, and he has now moved to a different part of the temple where women are allowed and everybody is allowed, where the treasury is located. And Jesus sits himself on a bench where he can see everybody dropping their offerings in what would be one of 13 containers that they had in the treasury for receiving such offerings. Thirteen. We only got one, two, three, I think. And then online. So I guess we'd have to count all your computers or whatever. So from Jesus' vantage point here, he can see pretty much 
everybody that's coming up and dropping their money. And Mark notes for us that there were many rich people, but the one who catches Jesus' eye happens to be a poor widow. And she drops in what we popularly call the widow's mite. What it really is is a copper lepton. I have one in my office, a real one. I bought it in the, somewhere in the early 1980s, I believe. And I paid a whopping $6 for it. And today I have noticed online, I looked at it yesterday, I was curious to what it would be worth. Today you can get two of them for $6. So if anybody wants an investment opportunity, I didn't buy it for that. I bought it because it's the copper leptin, and I thought it would be cool to have some time. And now it's taken all these years to be able to put a picture of it up here and use it. Anyway, it really is a worthless coin, essentially. Now, you have probably heard this story if you grew up in church about the widow and the widow's might. And I'm just going to bet that you have always heard of it used in the context of generous giving and sacrificial giving, because that's normally the way that it is extracted from the Scriptures, ignoring the whole context and going right to the easy, obvious Cheap application, legitimate application, but cheap derivative application instead of what the word and the point of it recorded it at that point and in that way for. So I'm going to inform you of that. Of course you are. See, if we just pay attention to the context, again, while there is some legitimacy of using this at some point in time in a different way as an example of faithful generosity and the virtue of sacrifice, okay, but the context works against this. Let's go back and make note of the preceding text right before it. Jesus was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces, in the chief seats, in the synagogues, and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses. And for appearances' sake, offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. The primary reading and application of this is that some of the most respected people around, some of the most privileged people of the day, some of the most wealthy people of one's culture may be people of very low integrity and may in fact be the stingiest, most corrupt, miserly people you will ever meet. So if you want to turn God's head, instead of being more like the widow, the passage is really a warning to be less like the privileged, dastardly hypocrites who ironically, for all of their vainglorious pomp and show of how generous they are, were they themselves, this is the point of the preceding text, they themselves were responsible in many ways for the widow's poverty by using their expertise in the law and by perverting the law in order to 
pilfer the widow's property. (laughs) Or like today's preachers who prey on the poor to manipulate them into giving them their paltry possessions promising them that God will bless them if they do tenfold, fiftyfold, a hundredfold for their faithfulness. Jesus isn't teaching here about sacrificial giving. He is teaching here about the nasty religious fakes who will be in, pun perfectly intended, and theologically precise, who will be in for a hell of a surprise come the judgment day. How many times thus far have we seen Jesus take people to task, lose his temper, and get physically violent as in the cleansing of the temple, for all of the hypocrisy and all of the scam of of religiosity that was serving nothing but to make people, in Jesus' own words, twice the disciples of hell as they were. (laughs) But have somebody come out today and publicly criticize somebody of the pharisaical ilk, manipulating the poor, taking advantage of them, And you're a hater. And you're the one who is viewed as being not Christ-like. Jesus has all the patience in the universe for the honest doubter. And he just wants to woo people, and he will. we've seen him. He goes through lengths and great patience and using stories and illustrations to get those honest doubters to come to him and, and the humble and those who aren't worthy of coming even all the more. Yes, 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 come, come, come. But boy, those who think they've got it together and that they will with great pride trample on the truly innocent, unsuspecting, and ignorant. Man, Jesus has no patience. The difference between Jesus, however, and us, meaning me, is that Jesus' judgments are always perfect. Ours, mine, are not but that doesn't negate the responsibility of the faithful Christ follower to rightly divide the word of truth, which means, first of all, knowing the word of truth. And so like the Bereans, day by day, in that habit of reading through the Scriptures, to get so familiar with the word of God that it will be there, even when you forget it, it will be there for the Holy Spirit to bring up and to use in our lives to become more like Him. Not so that we ever can become good enough to get to heaven. Jesus has already secured that. We heard that in the video. But so that we may actually benefit from becoming Christ-like. That is not first and foremost, but that is certainly the wonderful byproduct of striving to be like Jesus and walking in obedience to Him. May God have mercy on the wolves in sheep's clothing. And thankfully, we know he has mercy on the honest doubters. Let me have you stand.
Father, to be sure you are a patient, loving God and that you love from everlasting into everlasting, but we also know that you do not simply idly sit by and watch the religious fakes leading people astray. You will, O God, one way or another, by hook or by crook, with our cooperation or without our cooperation, you will bring the words of hope, the words of truth, to every ear. And then in the mystery that only you fully understand, Lord, you grant faith, you give understanding, You are calling, drawing, and wooing those unto Yourself whom You have marked out for salvation. Father in Heaven, thank You that by the authority of Your Word we can confidently stand that we are in that arena. So we thank You and ask You to continue working on us, for our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak, to the glory of your name. Amen.